In the world of wool, there are a lot of steps to unwind before you get a sweater. Obviously, there's the knitting, but before the knitting, there's the spinning and making of yarn. To do the spinning, you need a mill. And before the mill can get to work, you need the raw material, the fleece. And that's where the shearer comes in, because that's the person who gets the wool off the animal and on its way to the marketplace. On today's episode, we're going to talk to a shearer of sheep. And while there are all kinds of cool things to learn about wool and economics and how to make a sheep sit on its butt, there's a larger story here, where the arcane art of separating a sheep from its wool ends up connecting a lot of people, many of whom have nothing to do with sheep. Today, we hear a story about how people with the weirdest career path ever helped rescue their communities from calamity. This is Fiber Nation, Tales of Textiles, Craft, and Culture, and I'm your host, Alison Korleski. I first met today's guest not in a barn or pasture, but via a book and her Instagram feed. My name is Stephanie Wilkes, and I shear sheep, and I write. Stephanie is the author of Raw Material, Working Wool in the West. It's a wonderful, at times heart-clutching read, and we have a link on our show notes page. But if you think she grew up on a farm or ranch, you'd be way wrong. See, growing up, Stephanie was pretty much bottle-fed a diet of computer programming. And granted, this has nothing to do with sheep, but it's really cool. Stephanie's grandfather, who worked for the Department of Defense, was among the first to work in computers and coding. In fact, Grace Hopper, the Navy officer slash hidden figure who basically invented computer programming, was the one who trained him. And he in turn taught Stephanie, starting around the age of four. By the 1990s, as the tech world was taking off, she pretty much lived and breathed writing code. So her career path seemed set. I worked in various aspects of the software engineering field for 20 years. I really deeply enjoyed a lot of the work. So how do you go from what seems like a well-paid, secure job that you enjoyed to work with farm animals? But as anyone who has worked in tech knows, it's not terribly well-paid once you realize that you're working 80-hour weeks. Burnout is really common. And when you're digging around in computer systems, you might turn over a fair amount of rocks that have something fairly nasty underneath. I unfortunately found a lot of um, white-collar crime as, a, as an umbrella term, fraud and embezzlement primarily, uh, as part of that work. And I think that's probably not unusual for people who are digging into data at companies, right? So if you're looking for problems or somebody says, hey, we've got a bug and we're losing money because of this software, it's almost never the software, <laughs> It's, it's usually a person. But as she soon found out, it's hard to be a whistleblower if no one wants to hear it. So, you know, you, you find it at one job and you're like, well, I can't deal with this or they're not going to fire this person or you report it even and nothing really changes. And then you're the problem for reporting it. So it took me many jobs to realize that this was kind of normal. And like many women in tech, she faced a fair share of harassment. All these things took their toll. I definitely worked up to, I would say, burnout leading to a breaking point. So. That breaking point was really the first step on our journey. Because when you're burnt out and looking for your next direction in life, it naturally follows that you take up knitting. I 
moved to San Francisco in late February of 2007. And I took a knitting class at my local yarn shop. And my first question was, you know, where's your local yarn section? Because I grew up in Michigan and I've been living in Chicago and my conception of the West, which is, I mean, by this West of the Mississippi was these vast, you know, basin and range ranches and cattle and sheep. And I was really excited because I assumed that that wool would be finding its way into these kind of, you know, local (laughs) yarns. But in 2007, local yarn just wasn't a concept. It was hard to find yarns made in the U.S. from American wool, period. And this was during a period when knitting was really a thing. I mean, everyone had started knitting, from Hollywood stars to rock icons to cool kids in high school, right up there with the nerds. But with all that demand, you still couldn't get a yarn made here. To Stephanie, that didn't make sense. And since the programmer and her couldn't process this disconnect, the academic and her did the natural thing and attended a symposium on the domestic wool market. So they were talking about low wool prices, how they raise fiber sheep, but the commodity price on wool is so low that they can barely afford to pay the shearer. Some background here. We've talked in other episodes about the economics of wool in the U.S. The big ranches have to sell their wool overseas to make any kind of profit. And they only make a profit by operating on a huge scale, like thousands of sheep. And the people who shear sheep usually have to work on the same scale to earn a living, because they're getting $3, maybe $5 a head tops. And when it's hundreds of miles between one job to the next, a lot of their work is just driving, not earning. But those big ranches are the minority. There are maybe 88,000 sheep farms in the U.S., and 99% of those are small, like fewer than 100 animals, maybe just 20 to 40. There are plenty of animals that need shearing, but not many shearers will work on that small a scale because they can't earn a living. So you have to shear at least 100 sheep a day at that rate to, to make a decent wage. So if you have 20 sheep, you can't really you know, afford to drive an hour and a half to make $60 and leave, you know. And a lot of shearers were getting older and retiring. The children of farmers and ranchers who might have taken up the work were moving to town or choosing to work in the oil and gas fields in the West. Shearing sheep, it just wasn't a hot job market, even though there was definitely demand. Now, most people will hear the word shearer shortage and they see a distant economic issue and move on. Stephanie, though, saw an opportunity. People around this time were already trying to start small mills to process American wool. Stephanie wanted to process American sheep and help all those smaller farmers. Because how hard could it be? Well, and this is, I I call it urban hubris because I can't think of any other explanation. Is like, well, if I don't know something, I'll just go out and teach myself. Doing what most of us would do, she Googled the words shearing school. And yes, plenty of sites come up when you do that. Stephanie was idealistic and she wanted to help a dying industry. Her mindset, though, was more like vacation, not vocation. She found a school within traveling distance and thought it would be like adult ed, just a little grungier. Like you at least have a day or two in the classroom. You know, if you're learning programming, you're going to sit there and listen to a lecture and then you're going to go make a thing. So I was like, great, we're going to learn the background and the theory and the anatomy of sheep and shearing before we actually do anything. But no, (laughs) we got right into it. You watch a demonstration and then you start doing it. Uh, 
It was a rude and terrifying awakening. Sheep aren't friendly pets that get a lot of handling, and generally, they're not really down with being sheared. They look fairly small, some of them anyway, who are not the 200 to 300 pounders that look like small ponies, but they are heavy, they are tough, they are determined, they are really fast, they are incredibly strong physically. And so culturally, we speak about them as these docile, rather dumb animals, frankly, and they're not. They're prey animals. They pick up and sense all sorts of things before we do. So if you think you're getting away with anything around them, you're not. If you think you're just going to walk into a field and catch a sheep and give it a trim, think again. A sheep will either run away or kick your ass. Sometimes both. Ideally, sheep are rounded up before she even sets foot on a property. But even then, it's not easy. The first step that I do is I somehow get them out of the pen while they're fighting the whole time. That's like a rodeo. And then turn them over. And that looks more violent than it is. Have you ever seen those wooden dolls that are held together by rubber bands? If you push on the base of the doll, the bands go limp and the doll just kind of flops over. Sheep are kind of like that. Press a spot on the sheep's jaw, turn its head, and it just plops down on its butt. Then you start maneuvering the sheep with your legs and feet while your hands do the shearing. Proper shearing is a mix of physical wrestling, choreography, and extreme care with the animal. You want to get the wool off, but there's a lot of tender spots. We're always extremely careful, but on the belly, there are mammary veins, there are teats. If you are shearing a weather, which is a castrated ram, his pizzle is there in the middle of the belly and might be hidden by wool. So you don't want to cut the sheath of that at all. And there's a layer of dirt stuck to the wool that makes all those things harder to see. Um, the belly's often very dirty because they lay on it, right? So it's full of burrs and sharp things that they've picked up in the wool. Many people think of sheep as these fluffy white bumps grazing in a pasture. Disneyland sheep. In reality, they can be dirty and smelly, and their nether regions are caked in mud and manure. You might not want to use the wool from this area, but you do need to get it off. So there's a lot of turning and rolling and scooching the sheep to get to all those woolly bits. Then finally comes the easy part. And after that, we do what's called the long blow. So at this point, the sheep is laying on its right side on the floor. Its left side is up toward me. Its body is on top of my feet, so I can roll it toward me by raising my toes. And I shear tail to head. So you're just going right from the back, up those long sides to the top of its head, very long, smooth strokes. It's kind of the easiest, smoothest part of the day usually. Properly shorn, the fleece comes off the animal in one piece, looking like a sheep-shaped cardigan. And the sheep, now freed, bounces up, shakes itself, and is soon back in the pasture or pen. Disclaimer here, no sheep were harmed in the making of this podcast, even if things sound kind of rough. There's a video on our show notes page, and if you watch, you'll see the sheep is more resigned than anything else. Right. My goal is always to shear the sheep as safely as possible, as quickly as I can to get the animal like out of its miserable day. In fact, this process is generally far harder on the shearer than it is on the sheep. It only takes a few minutes per animal, but it's incredibly physically demanding. Some sheep are over 200 pounds. If you shear even 20 sheep in a day, you'll understand why it's not a popular career. Stephanie never even touched a sheep before she did that first Google search. But that changed fast. She learned a lot more than just how to handle a set of clippers, and she worked with a lot of animals, not just sheep. She trimmed hooves, fed and watered, she helped with lambing, she was there when the vet came out to put down an older, suffering animal. 
She learned how to move animals, pen them, or load them into trucks. She got an informal crash course in animal psychology, why a sheep does what it does, what makes an animal more comfortable, and more willing to do what you want. And when you work closely with animals, any animals, you notice things, even if you're not a vet. A shearer might be the first person to physically handle an animal in months, and when the wool comes off, you see the things that it hid. A tender red area that turns out to be a hernia, skin parasites like bot flies, and those are super gross, but I don't have time to go into them, so look them up. Wool can even camouflage animal attacks. During at over 9,000 feet, the surviving group of Icelandics from a flock that had been attacked by a bear on multiple visits it had killed most of the sheep. And I was sharing these Icelandics that had bear teeth healed holes in their necks. I mean, like holes as, uh, as wide as my fingers. And I'm like, that's a tough animal. <laughs> now, some shearers are vets. The people Stephanie trained with were a total mix of backgrounds and experience. Some were vet techs, basically moonlighting during shearing season. Others had small flocks of their own and helped other farmers when the time came. Sheep are shorn once, maybe twice a year, depending on the breed, so others had full-time jobs in forestry or they grew orchards or were firefighters. One man and his wife were trying to start a small mill to handle the wool from all of these small farming operations and make that local yarn actually happen. What Stephanie and these people all had in common was a personal connection to their communities. They wanted to help. Help people, help animals, help grow local businesses, make local products. They understood the links between the land and the farms and the animals that lived there. And alone, in pairs or small groups, they covered huge swaths of territory in their work. Remember, there's a lot of driving. And so they got really intimate with the terrain. They learned back roads that not many people travel. Pay attention to what I'm saying here, because it will become really important. Today, Stephanie is about as far away as she can get from her old job. It used to be wake up, check email, conference call, work for a couple hours, more emails, maybe a few more calls or meetings. The details might differ, but the cadence was regular. Now, though? Um, there's no average day. <laughs> I never know. I never know what I'm walking into. Even though Stephanie mostly works on those small flocks, there's always going to be something unexpected, some weird problem to solve, like shearing around bear bites. In fact, her best days are the unremarkable ones, where she can, in her own words, just rock and roll, finishing an entire flock without a hitch. Other days, though, most days, are far more demanding. And then there are those few days that are downright horrific, because even the most skilled shearer can make a mistake, let alone a novice. When I was a very, very new shearer, and I nicked, I did not cut through, but I nicked an artery on the very first stroke of the very first merino that I sheared, and another shearer and I stitched it up, and it was awful. I mean, it was covered in blood, and even though the sheep was totally fine, and it got its bearings a lot faster than I did after that, my, I mean, I was drained. For most of us listening, this would probably qualify as worst day ever. But Stephanie, along with many of her fellow shearers, was about to have not just a bad day or a bad week, but the worst season ever. Because 2017, like every year after, had seen the hottest summer on record. 
and due to invasive beetle species, record drought, and not always the best land management practices, the mountain west where she works went up in flames. Coming up after the break, we find out how people who shear sheep, which on the surface seems like the narrowest skill set ever, became important in the fight against California wildfires. Okay, we're back, and this is the part in our story where you need to buckle up. Because just a few years into her new career, Stephanie's life and that of her customers and colleagues and friends changed, probably forever, because much of the Western U.S. exploded in recurring, devastating wildfires. October 17 was the turning point, was our first megafire, and we have them every year now. Tonight, the desperate battle to contain California's historic fires is now over. This morning, dozens of wildfires burning across our state, forcing evacuations and causing some very bad air. More than two and a half quarter million acres burned in California this year. A megafire, it's a squishy term. It can mean a fire bigger than 24,000 acres. It can mean a fire bigger than 100,000 acres, if you can even imagine that. It's a fire so big, it makes its own weather. And a megafire is often several simultaneous fires that decide to meet up, as we had last summer. Where I live in Colorado, the Cameron Peak and East Troublesome fires, bad enough on their own, came within a few miles of one another, practically surrounding the town of Estes Park and burning parts of Rocky Mountain National Park. And these fires and several others in Colorado burned not for days or weeks, but in some cases, months. They were so big, so unpredictable, they defied every attempt to control them. And in California, things were far worse. Even as I record this episode in January 2021, there are currently five wildfires burning in California. In 2020, there were over 9,000, burning over 4 million acres. And I know these are really hard numbers to wrap your head around, but imagine if Connecticut and Rhode Island both burned down to the ground over one summer. And a megafire is more than just a big fire. It's a fire that is especially hard to fight. Megafires create their own winds and drop embers and flame well ahead of the actual fire. You might not be able to get close enough to fight them. They jump every barrier meant to contain them. And they spread unbelievably fast. Imagine an entire football field gone in seconds. One after another after another. And that raises a big question. Where do you evacuate to if everything around you is burning? Early that October morning, around 2.30 a.m., Stephanie and her husband woke up smelling smoke. They thought it was from a block party the night before. Maybe someone's barbecue was still smoldering. Stephanie even went to check the hillside behind the house to make sure it wasn't a grass fire. She saw nothing but couldn't get back to sleep. When your brain smells smoke, something kicks in. Maybe some sort of evolutionary trait, keeping us safe. Stephanie had a job that morning. So I got up to start driving about 6 a.m. to a rural area that's about 90 miles east of me. And when I opened the garage to pull out, a hot ember fell from the sky, like right onto the driveway. And that, that is the moment my life changed because we in San Francisco do not get embers. We are surrounded by water on three sides. So for an ember to land in front of my house means very big wind to carry, and something very bad going on. Bad in this case meant there were 14 fires burning at the same time, and they had started to join up. Even at 6 a.m., the highway was already crowded with people trying to get away from the flames. 
From her spot on the road, Stephanie could see the fire. Walls of flame, maybe 20 feet high. They were moving 100 miles an hour, and they made the cars traveling on I-80 look slow. Like everyone else, she had the radio on and kept checking her phone. Her client was east of her, but were they okay? Could she get there? Should she even try? You just, you're listening to the radio about where it is, and you also don't want to drive into the area that people are trying to evacuate from. You know, so you want to be helpful. Your instinct is to like run to the people that you know are in that area, except that you don't want to make it worse by showing up. And there's a lot of issues with gawkers and things like that. But you go right into logistics mode. And in just a few texts, she went from hoping people were safe to helping people be safe. And those past few years of working with animals were suddenly really important. I pulled over the car and I was like, okay, who has a livestock trailer? Like who lives where versus where the fires are burning? And I started calling people in fire areas to see like, do you need a place to evacuate to? Or do you need me to come and help you? And I was like, I might be just a sharer, but in that moment, I mean, I honestly did not realize the skills that I had that I could bring until it's called, you know, until, until you're called upon to do it. And I was like, I know how to handle animals. I know how to halter them. I know how to move fence. Like I know how to load. I can even pick up a sheep. <laughs> I'm strong. Like, if I have to pick up a sheep and throw it into a trailer, I can do it. You know? And she was looking out for more than just sheep. Elderly customers too were top of my mind. So who is alone? Who may need more help on their property? Um, you know, can I drive to them safely? Stephanie wasn't alone. The people she worked with, ranchers and farmers, other shearers, residents in the small town, started talking with each other, by phone, by text, any way they could. What began as just checking on clients and friends became more coordinated, because Stephanie and the others knew the terrain. They knew what roads connected where, how someone might evacuate if one road was closed. If the owner had already fled, they knew people with trailers to get the animals out. When it came to actually fighting the fires and evacuating people, Cal Fire and local emergency management ran the show. But Stephanie and her gang had information that Cal Fire needed. And they're like, do you know, do you know this road? And I'm like, yeah, I know that road. I have a bunch of customers on that road. Like just knowing the territory and knowing where a house is and a rural setup and where to go and to not get hurt or do anything stupid. When we talk, Stephanie repeatedly downplays her part in helping. She focuses on what other people did. It's not necessarily, you know, the real, the real heroes you need to see are like the cowgirls who the fire is burning in the field and they are roping horses that are running and crazy and scared in a fire and catching them. Like there, there are things you see that you're like, those people are other, otherworldly to me. I understand what she's saying. Here in Colorado, during the Cameron Fire this past August and September, the sky here was brown and dark, even at noon. Cars and patios were covered in ash, and it fell from the sky like snow, day after day. It was hard to breathe a lot of those days. And we were several miles away, outside the evacuation zones. To be in a fire like that, to willingly go into it? No wonder we revere firefighters, or cowgirls rescuing horses. And Stephanie talks about something else beyond the flames. In news stories, you see dramatic photos and videos, but you never see the actual heat. It's very hot. And this sounds really obvious to say, but like when you see a fire on TV, you don't understand the temperature. Other things get hot that are not the fire. So what we have a situation of is that embers are blowing ahead. The winds are so strong that the embers are blowing, say, a quarter mile ahead of the actual fire. So there's fire kind of raining down. 
And while it rained down, you had some very brave people, ranchers, cowgirls, shearers, vets, whatever, people who had experience handling animals. They volunteered to go into those conditions and help get animals out. Not their own, just anyone's, while there was still a chance of rescue. We've all read the news stories where someone saves a donkey during a wildfire and unites it with its owner, and it's this great feel-good moment we all share on Facebook. In reality, though, there are thousands of donkeys, horses, goats, sheep, cattle, and they don't find their way home for weeks and months, if at all. As animals were brought to evacuated areas, they needed somewhere to go and someone to take care of them, usually for a long time. So then after those initial emergency runaround days and hours, the fires tend to burn for months. So evacuated animals are often taken to fairgrounds very far from where their homes are. And so that is another logistics operation. You're volunteering to feed water, clean pens, do animal intake, you know, make sure animals are tagged. And there's harder work, too, because when a fire spreads that fast, a football field a minute, not every animal makes it out okay. What happens a lot is that basically the animal is alive, but its hooves are completely burned off. And they have to be put down because, you know, they were running and the ground was on fire. The scale is hard. You know, you can imagine maybe one or two animals in that situation, but when there's dozens or hundreds, yeah, it's really hard. And, and it's even the aftermath, right? Like the, I think some of the worst scenes are not just those dramatic ones, but, you know, animals laying in a field afterward all burned. It's, it's like a war zone. And I think I've talked to a couple of friends of mine in the military and they're like, well, we get some training about that, but like volunteers don't, you know? So it's, it's very hard. That's the hard part. You can call it climate change. You can call it emergency weather events. The common thread is the trauma and the suffering, and that crosses every political barrier and, and even economic barrier. Stephanie and her fellows worked hard all that fire season, and the next, and the next, and the next. Because fire is its own season now, as inevitable as summer or winter. Earlier, I mentioned how many of her fellows had dual careers, shearing in spring and doing something else much of the rest of the year. For many, this something else now includes formal fire training. Besides knowing how to handle animals, they learn about chain of command, how to operate ham radios. They get certified to drive large trailers. The guy who's a forester, he helps cut fire lines now. It's a natural extension of their skills into the unnatural firescape California now becomes every year. These fires destroy entire towns and forests, but they also bring people together. And I don't mean the online fundraisers or community drives at the local coffee shop. I don't mean the donations of food and feed and cash to help fire victims try to piece things back together. Those things are important. They're necessary. But they're not what I'm talking about. I'm thinking of the camaraderie that comes from living through a moment together. The moment you realize your client got out, but their sheep are still on the farm. The moment when you find someone who has a trailer to help, but doesn't know the way, and you do. The moment you get to the fairgrounds and then work more than 24 hours trying to organize feed and vet care for hundreds, thousands of animals that are arriving from everywhere. And the moment when you see how many can't be saved, and know you'd be helping with that too. 
And the moment you realize that everyone around you is feeling exactly the same thing at that same time, and that's how you all get through it together. Stephanie compares what they did with healthcare workers in the time of COVID. They'd been through things that outsiders will never understand, and that makes a bond that transcends politics or income or geography. During our talks, I kept asking her why she does this, driving hundreds of miles each week during shearing season, wrecking her back, getting knocked down and trampled and exhausted to the point where she's shaking. I understand corporate burnout, but why not say freelance writing, occasional contract work, maybe even a job in a yarn shop? And she could never come up with a satisfying answer. Uh, we do not know. <laughs> it's really a joke among shearers. We, we call it woolly worms because we're like, it's just, we know it's crazy to keep doing this. Listening to her, though, I wonder if the answer is this. She's part of something, something bigger than her or her fellow shearers or the farmers they work for. Something that is all about connecting to other people, to the animals they care for, and to the land itself. I don't think it's coincidence that Stephanie's fellow shearers are foresters, farmers, social workers, even an acupuncturist who dropped off the grid and now offers her services for whatever people can pay. Whatever their path, they seem dedicated to helping others, humans and animals. And when the next fire season hits, many of them will be there, ready to help again. Thank you for listening to Fiber Nation. If you like what you hear, please rate us and leave a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Your reviews help other people find us. Fiber Nation is produced by me, Allison Korleski. Our co-producer and audio engineer is Daisha Clay. Fiber Nation is part of Interweave and Golden Peak Media, and our executive podcast producer is Jared Mayer. Right. My goal is always to shear the sheep as safely as possible, as quickly as I can to get the animal like out of its miserable day. And apologies, you know, trigger warning, uh, gynecology analogy, but like, that's what I want, right? Is that like, you have to have an uncomfortable day every year or two, and you just want somebody to get you in and out of there as painlessly as possible while not hurting you or missing anything important, right? Okay, slight pressure now. <laughs> right. Yeah. Got to do it. <laughs>